This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, January 13th, 2023, and I'm James Heelan, an attorney from the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Today, we're breaking down the top 10 cases impacting the federal workforce in 2022. We'll give an overview of each case and how it impacts your work in federal agencies. Joining me for this discussion, I have two of my attorney colleagues from the law firm. First is Connor Dirks, a partner at the firm, where he's practiced law since 2013. I had the pleasure of assisting Connor in filing an amicus brief uh, last year in the case of Santos v. NASA, which made our top 10 list last year, maybe uh, impacted the work of those who are listening to the show. Connor, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Hi, James. And next, we have Michael Scarlett. He's an associate attorney here at the law firm where he's practiced since 2015, and I've had the pleasure of working with Michael on a number of MSPB matters. He's a joy to work with, and I'm glad to have you here. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, James. I'm excited to talk about these cases today. Yeah, well, let's get started. Of course, as I said, we're here to review and discuss the top 10 cases issued in 2022 by the Merit Systems Protection Board, the independent federal agency that adjudicates employee appeals and disciplinary actions and other matters in the federal government. And of course, the U.S. Court of uh, Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which is the reviewing court for the MSPB. We're going to talk about the cases coming out of those two bodies that impacted the federal workforce in 2022. The reason we're talking about these cases is because me, Michael, and Connor write case law updates for the law firm's two e-publications, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Of course, Fed Manager is directed towards the management and executive side uh, of, of the federal workforce, and Fed Agent is more focused towards the federal law enforcement community. We've written case law updates almost every week. Uh, in 2022, um, the, the matters coming out of the MSPB and federal circuit that impact the federal workforce. And we have gotten together to talk about, um, you know, the top 10 in our ordering. So, Connor, would you brief the audience on how we came to reach these top 10 cases? Sure. Well, you know, it's a very scientific process, James. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we, like James mentioned, we, we are the authors, myself, James, Michael, and Victoria Grieshammer at our law firm the authors of a weekly case law update. Um, so we are monitoring cases as they issue um, and providing, you know, the kind of instant analysis and reaction to them. So at the end of the year, we have a really good handle on, you know, which cases have issued, what the major holdings are, and why they're important to the workforce. So, you know, our methodology is that we tried to rank them in a way that reflected the broad impact on the workforce itself, while also catering to our, you know, individual uh, nerdy legal interests. <laughs> yeah, and another piece of that is really the practicality, you know, things that we see walk through our door every single day here at the law firm, um, and, uh, you know, changes in, in administrative and judicial um, 
law on various issues as well, stimulating again our intellectual um, interest in these cases. Right, so we got together a couple of days ago, spent an hour or so going over these cases, nominating cases and then voting on them. And I think our consensus criteria was the number of federal employees any particular case would impact and the degree of the impact that particular case would have, including whether the case uh, reversed existing case law or was coming out of a higher level authority. You know, earlier I just mentioned, we're talking about MSPB cases, federal circuit cases, but of course we're also considering and there will be uh, at least one Supreme Court case on our top 10 list because the Supreme Court having authority over the entire country and the entire federal workforce and its decisions. So its cases will have a tremendous impact um, you know, once they issue. We're also going to talk about some cases that deal specifically with, well, would see at least on first glance to deal specifically with the federal law enforcement community. But we also talked uh, in our conversation the other day that those, those cases may impact the broader federal community. Isn't that right, Michael? Yeah, that is right. And, and at least one case today that, you know, we'll be talking about um, affects all government workers and how they could be perceived as government actors for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. So, you know, it's just a, another little piece of information there that um, the, the listeners may be interested in. Yeah, and, you know, I think when we're looking at all of these cases, what we're really looking for is just not just how, when you first read it, is it is it interesting to you, but is it going to, or does it have the potential to affect your rights, uh, affect the way you do your job? Um, and if, God forbid, you ever get in trouble, um, affect the way a disciplinary action will be processed, um, or how courts will view uh, that action. Right, there was at least one case, Connor, I know that was near and dear to you, that uh, you thought was very stimulating, very interesting to you as an attorney that didn't make our list. Uh, in this first segment, before we yeah. dive into our top 10, do you want to give this honorable mention a description? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this, uh, I, there is an honorable mention, and um, it was a case that I thought was very interesting because I'm obsessed with a legal issue called exhaustion um, of administrative remedies. Uh, but we thought at the end of the day, uh, a purely legal concept um, that most people won't encounter uh, was not going to make our cut. Uh, so we did start with about, I think, 16, 17 cases um, that were nominated for our top 10 and got it down to 10 Although we may have cheated just a little bit, yeah, we cheated which a little you, bit. Yeah, you'll hear about that sooner. Yeah, in, in that niche case you're mentioning, Connor, I believe it involved whistleblower protection uh, rights, right? It did. Yeah, no, it did. It, it involved the uh, whether or not a preliminary closure of your case at the Office of Special Counsel, um, if you don't challenge it, don't respond to it, still counts as full exhaustion of your administrative remedies. Um, and the board found that it did. So that was, that I think is a great um, common sense ruling that uh, hopefully most people will never have to take advantage of. But even though we excluded that case from our top 10 list, we certainly didn't give short thrift to whistleblower protection case law. I think we have a couple of those showing up higher on the list, meaning that they'll be in a later segment. So our top 10 list deals with, let's see, going through the list, 
We have the MSPB three-member board back and active. We have them not deferring to lower-level determinations of penalty and disciplinary actions. We're going to talk about cases addressing due process issues, including when deciding officials and disciplinary actions consider evidence not presented to a subject employee. Talk about agencies being able to cure due process actions while matters are on appeal. As Michael mentioned, we'll also discuss a case that involves who's a government actor for purposes of search and seizure under the Fourth Amendment. Uh, This will actually be pretty broadly applicable to the listening audience. We have at least one retirement case, actually only one retirement case that I'm pretty excited to talk about. We have cases that talk about defining statutory terminology, including what is a significant change in duties for WPEA, Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act purposes, and what is an abuse of authority for purposes of disclosing wrongdoing within the federal government. We have a pair of cases, not to spoil anything, uh, addressing lawsuits by members of the public against federal employees and their personal individual pocketbook capacities. And our number one case is going to talk about uh, an MSPB decision that came out early in the year after the board was fully reconstituted uh, that overruled 10 years of penalty determination precedent from the board. So it's pretty uh, significant change in the law that will impact federal employees across the executive branch. So when we return, we will start discussing the significance of each case starting at number 10 and its impact on the federal workforce. We have to stop here for our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We'll be right back to continue the conversation. Good vision coverage shouldn't be blurry. It took just one look at Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP vision to see the difference. All members get fully covered in-network vision care exams, plus access to over 125,000 independent providers and national retailers and plans that start as low as $12 a month. That's why I chose Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepvision.com. Welcome to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. My name is James Heeland, and I'm here with my attorney colleagues at the law firm of Shaw, Bransford & Roth, Connor Dirks, and Michael Scarlett. We're discussing the most impactful cases for the federal community from last year. So, If you listen to the last segment, you heard a preview of our cases. We have 10 of them. Starting at number 10 is actually a bit of a cheat because it's two cases. These are two cases coming from the Merit Systems Protection Board and the newly reconstituted three-member board. For those of you unfamiliar, the board went several years without any membership whatsoever. There are three members on the board that must be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Back in March 22, the board obtained a quorum with two members and was finally filled out in May when the chair was confirmed. Several months later, we had the board issuing these two cases, Chin versus Department of Defense and Thomas versus the Department of the Army, which to me stand out uh, for the proposition that this board is not afraid of upsetting the apple cart. They are not concerned with how much time has gone by and how long cases have been pending because uh, in Both cases were actually decided by administrative judges back in 2016. So they'd been pending for around six years by the time the board issued their decisions. Both of these decisions reversed lower level decisions and changed penalties. The case of Chin involved an individual who was uh, a Department of Defense employee who took an extra $5 worth of food at the agency cafeteria without paying for that food. The individual was then removed by the agency and the administrative judge upheld the penalty of removal. The employee, Chin, appealed to the board and tested the degree of discipline against him. 
and the board six years later overturned the removal action and mitigated the penalty to a 90-day suspension. Then in the case of Thomas versus Army, as I said, also in 2016, uh, this individual was removed for sexual comments to colleagues and making uh, his female colleagues uncomfortable under certain circumstances. The agency removed the individual and the administrative judge uh, mitigated that penalty down to a 14-day suspension and a demotion to a non-supervisory position. The board, again, six years later, uh, reversed or, or changed the penalty and said the AJ was incorrect and that the agency's removal decision was correct. Um, these are two cases where the board, in my understanding, is really trying to get things right and really trying to emphasize uh, common sense penalties. And those of you who are familiar with the Douglas factors, they're going to continue popping up through our next several cases. Um, the board is really emphasizing, in my mind, that the Douglas factors need to be considered in whole. That there's no um, you know, ultimate Douglas factor that controls the outcome of a case. So uh, I thought these were pretty interesting decisions. Connor, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that, I mean, I think both of these decisions struck me when they first issued for the reasons you mentioned, James, but just the scale of both of the, you know, the misconduct issues, the, you know, $5 um, in extra food from the cafeteria that results in a termination that then six years later is reversed. Um, and so, yeah, what start out starts out as a dispute about $5 ends up as a back pay award, most likely um, of much more than that. Uh, and right, right. when you said earlier that the board isn't afraid of upsetting the apple cart, I think that's right, because um, the amount of kind of administrative burden in reincorporating an employee after six years is pretty high. But they just seem like they want to they want to get it right. And a termination and there were some special circumstances in that case um, was not the right result. Um, and they saw to it that it got fixed. Yeah, I agree with you guys. Um, I really think that what the board's doing here is it's trying to break through the noise. I mean, an employee shouldn't get fired for $5 worth of food, and an employee shouldn't be allowed to continue working for sexual misconduct. The board's just trying to get things right. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think that's a, a big step going forward, and it signals maybe where it's headed in 2023. Right. Of course, there are special circumstances in, in each case. It's not, you know, plain and simple um, news headlines to understand. But Michael, speaking of trying to get things right and come in with an equitable result, you've got number nine, Johnson B. Air Force out of the federal circuit. I do. Um, so this is a September 2022 case by the federal circuit. And as James mentioned earlier, um, the federal circuit has jurisdiction over MSPB decisions and its decisions are binding on the MSPB. But here in Johnson, um, this relates to an ex parte due process issue in an agency disciplinary action proceeding. And um, for those of you who aren't familiar with what ex parte means, it's, it's when you have new and material information um, that's introduced and, and not made it available to the employee who's um, appealing uh, uh, adverse or disciplinary action against him or her. Um, but here in Johnson, we got a firefighter who failed a drug test and uh, was removed from the federal service. And that um, decided official in that case, um, his decision to remove um, the employee was challenged. Um, and the um, employee brought this uh, case to arbitration. And in arbitration, the decided official um, 
testified that he consulted with his primary advisor. His number one person here is his wife, and his wife happened to be a nurse. And that deciding official relied on that information um, in deciding to remove this employee. So the employee challenged it up to the federal circuit, and the federal circuit here found that um, this deciding official relied on new information. And given who it came from, his wife found it was likely to create undue pressure in his decision-making process. Yeah, this one is so interesting to me. It's, it's, I, I love the story here. Um, and also that uh, it's one of those, those moments where someone takes the stand, the stand, in this case, the deciding official, and he's really confident and says, you know, I consulted with my most trusted advisor. Um, and it's, you know, it's supposed to be connecting with the decision maker, the judge and, or arbitrator in this case. Um, but what it's really doing is uh, letting everyone know that something else influenced his decision that the employee wasn't aware of. Mm -hmm. um, and when a case is about the failing of a drug test, a medical issue, and your wife is a nurse and she's telling you what is and isn't possible, um, and you don't say it in your decision, but you later testify about it, you've got a real problem um, and the employee should have been able to respond to that new information. I also right, the pro the prohibition against ex parte communications in the federal employment context is not new. Um, we all know the oh. case in the federal circuit stone. I can't remember who it's against from 20 some years ago, but this Johnson case is telling us one um, new material information that potentially violates an employee's rights that, uh, could come from outside of the employment realm. It could come from outside the office. It could happen at home. And two, I think the big lesson here is, uh, you know, people who are responsible for making decisions about employment actions really shouldn't be talking about those employment actions <laughs> in personal lives, right? They should be, uh, they should be professional, maintain those communications with people in the office uh, and lines of communications that are approved and appropriate. Because uh, as Connor pointed out uh, during the conversation we had the other day, you know, the constitutional thing to do in this instance would have been for the deciding official to cough up that he got this material information from his spouse and that he was talking about this case at home and then allowing the employee the opportunity to respond to it. And on appeal, as Connor astutely pointed out to me, the spouse would have been a witness. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure she would have loved that. <laughs> So this is a lesson for deciding officials as well as for informing employees about the things that they might want to be aware of or try to explore in discovery if they're trying to identify a due process issue. Speaking of due process issues, coming in at number eight is another federal circuit decision, Coy v. Treasury. Connor, how about you tell us about it? So uh, Coy v. Treasury is uh, a recent case from August, and... This case is, I think, it, it runs along the same lines of, of some things we've already talked about and will continue to talk about, which is, you know, common sense results. Uh, and in this case, um, a due process issue arose, but the judge said, you know, the employee committed the misconduct. The penalty of removal was reasonable. The only problem is uh, that they didn't get full due process. Um, and that's a significant issue. So 
uh, the judge reversed the removal so that the employee- say, Connor, yeah, when you say judge, office. you mean the administrative judge at the MSPB, right? I do. Yeah. The administrative judge at the MSPB reverses it and says, yeah, I would have sustained it. Um, everything, the agency, you're right. This happened. Removal's fine, but there's this due process issue. So it gets sent back, but the agency, they don't think there was a due process issue. So they appeal. Um, but while they're appealing, there's no MSPB. There's no board, rather. Uh, mm -hmm. It was in that mm -hmm. time when there wasn't a quorum. So uh, instead of waiting for you know six years, seven years for that quorum to be restored, the agency just started new removal proceedings. They fixed the due process issue. They provide the employee that information that he didn't have before. Um, and they proceed with a new removal action. And the employee challenged it and uh, asks the federal circuit eventually whether uh, the government should be able to fire him again while his removal action is still technically pending up on appeal. And the answer is a resounding yes. It's not a particularly <laughs> complicated decision, um, but I think it, it closes, I don't want to call it a loophole, but um, these avenues where, you know, you people have these myths about what is right and what is wrong and how you should proceed in these instances. Um, and I, I think this just streamlines the process. And I also think the federal circuit here is, you know, they're, they're, they're opining on governmental efficiency that, you know, managers are making the decision to that they don't like this employer, they don't want that employee there, they want to take some kind of disciplinary action, and they're not letting these procedural loopholes um, prevent them from, uh, 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 you know, taking actions against employees anymore. Right. Hey, say, Michael, take us out of the you know, MSPB, Federal Circuit, U.S. Supreme Court um, chain and take us to the Fifth Circuit for our number seven case. All right. United States versus John Lewis. Um, it's a Fifth Circuit decision um, that was issued in August 2022. And, um, you know, I, it may be a Fifth Circuit decision, but I, I actually think that this case, as I mentioned earlier, may have a broader impact across the um, federal government and um the employees who work for it. Now, here in John Lewis, what you have is a USPS postal carrier. And um, this carrier was delivering a package and there was some kind of like a hole in the package and she found it a little suspicious and um, got a peek in the contents and, and, and determined that there may be drugs in there. Um, was a little worried um, that there are kids in the neighborhood, delivers this, you know, mail in this neighborhood every single day. Um, and this ended up resulting in a search of the box that she delivered and the arrest of the defendant who, who shipped it out. And um, this defendant sought to suppress the evidence as a Fourth Amendment violation. Now, because right, it was amendment, without it was without a warrant, right? It was a warrantless search yep, of a box it, by a federal employee, right? Yep. And, so and that's the, exactly what the Fourth Amendment prohibits, um, except in other certain circumstances. Now, what this case came down to is who is a government actor for uh, whom the Fourth Amendment applies? And you know, right here we have a USPS postal carrier. She's a federal employee, but the federal, but I'm um, sorry, the Fifth Circuit said, no, you know, she's not a government actor because she was not carrying out a law enforcement function. So in that instance, that discovered evidence was allowed in the prosecution, right? Yes. So the, the evidence was allowed. It was not suppressed by the defendant's motion. 
Right. And so this, you know, can apply to federal employees across the board because certainly people might uncover inadvertently or intentionally evidence of crimes in the federal workplace. And as you know, federal employees, people often lose sight of the fact that they themselves are acting on behalf of the federal government. So this case may be useful, maybe something to talk about with agencies, offices of general counsel about what managers are and are not allowed to look into in the federal workspace. And I do wish we could talk a lot more about it, but we must stop here for our second break. When we come back, Connor, Michael, and I will continue this conversation with additional cases from 2022 impacting federal personnel. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Want to know the secret to my bright, vibrant smile? It starts with my Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP dental coverage. I have no deductible for in-network services like fillings, x-rays, and root canals, and my routine preventive care is fully covered, including up to three cleanings a year. Plus, having nearly half a million in-network provider access points means I can find trusted care close to home. Plans start as low as $20 a month. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepdental.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I'm James Heelan, and I'm here with my colleagues, Michael Scarlett and Connor Dirks. We're all attorneys at the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, and we're now entering the second half of our show talking about the top 10 cases coming out of the MSPB and the federal judiciary in 2022 that impact the federal workforce. We're on number six, and this is our retirement case. It's CLIP versus the Department of Homeland Security. It came out of the federal circuit in May of 2022. And it involves law enforcement retirement. This is something I had the pleasure of writing about for Fed Agent last year. And uh, I think it, it is rightfully placed on our list, sort of in the middle of the pack, um, as a significant development in the law enforcement retirement um, qualification sort of review process. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar, law enforcement officers or people who perform law enforcement duties who don't necessarily carry guns and badges are entitled to a special annuity that allows them to retire after performing 20 years of service after at least the age of 50. And of course, you know, being eligible for law enforcement or LE retirement is certainly an important thing for an individual to know to allow them to plan um, how much money they're going to have in retirement, allow them to plan when they're going to retire, allow them to plan on you know, potentially having a second career at age 50 or whatever it is that they reach their LE uh, retirement eligibility. So being able to have certitude is incredibly important in the retirement planning process. Now, for many years, uh, the, the rule was that employers could only look at position descriptions to identify whether an employment position qualified for LE retirement. It was all about the PD, all about the PD. Did it require that kind of position to perform law enforcement type duties? Now, those are defined by OPM regulation that we don't need to regurgitate here. But uh, for those of you who think you might be qualified for LE retirement, certainly there's an OPM reg that you can look uh, further into. But for our purposes, CLIP versus Department of Homeland Security is the federal circuit saying that PDs are not controlling, they are not dispositive, meaning that they are not the last word on the subject. 
that employees must be given the opportunity to demonstrate to the MSPB and to their employer, who's classifying their position, um, that they are performing actual law enforcement duties or that they did perform actual law enforcement duties during the course of their careers that they're seeking credit for. And that is a big, big development. This is the federal circuit acknowledging that PDs are outdated sometimes, that there is sometimes a lag uh, in agencies classifying positions. This is a positive um, acknowledgement of reality by the federal circuit. Don't you think, Connor? Yeah, so what you just said there, that it's an an acknowledgement of reality, right? Uh, That we shouldn't get trapped in the, you know, the bureaucratic uh, record when reality exists and is recountable. Um, And so if an employee and other people, colleagues know what that employee did at certain point in the 20 years that they're looking to get for their law enforcement retirement, then that's, that's what you should go by, not what it says on a piece of paper. And I'm sure many of our listeners have held a PD at one time or another that uh, was not a complete uh, recollection of what they actually do at, at their job. Yeah, and you guys kind of took the words right out of my mouth. Um, you know, <laughs> I do think that the Federal Circuit shown some awareness here on how outdated PDs can actually be and in reliance on them um, for law enforcement retirement um, is just a, sort of a silly concept. Um, you know, I just recently I've seen PDs that date back to um, 2009 and the government's still relying on them. So I think it's a really smart decision in that regard. Definitely. And, you know, as a, a lesson for the listening audience who think this may apply to them, it's also a, a good reminder that people should be active in yeah. communicating with their agencies about whether they are in an LE position for retirement purposes. Don't wait until the end of your career. Don't wait until you've done your 20 years and you're ready to walk out the door into another career or into um, traditional retirement. Communicate with your agency now. Figure it out now um, so that you're not surprised later. Yeah, so that you're not planning your retirement party and then realize you have two more years. I had a client uh, that actually was the case. (laughs) That was almost literally the case. Say, Connor, let's talk about these whistleblower protection cases that have made our list. Absolutely. Coming in at number five. uh, Number five is uh, Scarada, the Department of Veterans Affairs. It's a MSPB case from June, 2022. Um, I am uh, really partial to this case because it will help me in the future communicate with clients um, about what they believe are are their whistleblower protection uh, enhancement act claims their whistleblower retaliation claims. So I, I think before I kind of get started, it's there's really two parts of a whistleblower retaliation complaint. It's that you make a protected disclosure and that in response, a manager uh, takes a retaliatory personnel action. And the law defines what those personnel actions are. Uh, and the most nebulous one is what this case deals with, the one that is called a uh, significant change uh, in duties. So this is the one that clients come to me the most asking about. Uh, It's the one that is the most vague. Everyone knows what a demotion is. Everyone knows what a reassignment is. Everyone knows what a removal is, right? There's really no debate about that. This is debatable. What is significant uh, in a significant change in working duties? 
And so that's what this case addresses, uh, is what the board's view is on um, how an employee can prove that a, that something that happened at work is a significant change of working duties so much that it rises to the level of a personnel action. Right, because a lot of employees who will find themselves in difficult work situations, you know, many people think, oh, I've had a significant change of duties because oh, I've yeah. experienced these, these stressors at work or these, you know, microaggressions from my supervisor and those around them. Um, but those feelings of aggrievement don't always meet the legal standard. So, Connor, what, what is the legal standard coming out of the board? So, um, the board kind of looked back over the course of, you know, decades of case law and, and came up with a, a more nuanced definition. Um, and, and the definition is a little bit better, but I think even more, and we'll talk about it in a second, is kind of what they said yay or nay to. Um, so the new definition is that to amount to a significant change, an agency action must have a significant impact on the overall nature or quality of an employee's working conditions, responsibilities, or duties. It's still not as specific <laughs> as I'd like it to be, but um, I do think what they're trying to get at is this can't be just a one-off thing. These can't be just a thing that happens to you at the job um, on one day. Can't just be like a little responsibility here or there. And so I think it's really illustrated by um, the employee's claim here. And so the employee says that, okay, I made this disclosure and here's what happened to me. Uh, my manager removed some of my duties and responsibilities. Uh, they ignored me in the office. They claimed they didn't know answers to my very simple questions. They failed to provide me with guidance on how to do my job. And in at least one instance, uh, the employee claimed that the managers yelled at him. So the board looks at all those, takes them at face value and says, that really doesn't make the cut. That's not a significant change in working duties. Right. The three-member board said, even assuming all of those things were true, even if true, they didn't meet the legal definition of a significant change of duties for whistleblower protection enhancement act purposes. Right. That's right. Um, you know, if a manager is a little untimely in getting back to you and providing you guidance, um, and in this case, there were three alleged incidents of yelling, but they were spread out over the course of a year, and so they're, you know, it's just not, it's not dramatic enough. Um, it doesn't affect mm -hmm. the overall job that you're assigned, the overall duties that you have. And I think that was key. What the what the board is saying is what Congress meant and what we're really looking for is a real alteration of your job. And that didn't occur. Mm -hmm. I think this you know, board, I, Go ahead, I Michael. This, I think this new board's um, you know, clarification of what a significant change in duties is 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 very intentional. You know, there aren't, I mean that many decisions that they've issued so far and this was one of the early ones that they issued um and you know they're, they're really creating efficiency by clarifying this um you know and i think the intent there could be to cut down on meritless um, whistleblower protection claims before the mspb um what, what do you guys think about yeah that? the ones that aren't just just don't quite have the requisite level of support well, I also wonder how much of the board's consideration was practical. You know, when a person brings a whistleblower or retaliation claim and pursues it at either at the Office of Special Counsel or uh, on their own in an individual area of action at the MSPB, you know, if they 
established that they're experiencing whistleblower retaliation, there has to be some kind of remedy. And so in the circumstances Congress just described in the Scarada case, you know, assuming um, that it, those actions had risen to the level of significant change of duties for statutory purposes, like what's the remedy? How yeah, does the board um, require managers to answer obvious questions or, uh, you know, how do they, how would the board issue an order to control workplace conduct and, and engage, like what is yelling, what's not yelling? There may be some practical considerations here. Um, the, you know, we talked about um, whistleblower protection in this case. And Connor, you have another case that made it to our number four on the list that also deals with whistleblower uh, protection activities, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm the whistleblower protection guy today. Uh, so <laughs> the number four case is Smolinski v. MSPB, another case uh, that I really like. And this is from the Federal Circuit in January. So right out of the gates in 2022. Uh, and this is on the other side of the equation in whistleblower protection. It's about you know, what constitutes a protected disclosure. And again, the most nebulous kind of protected disclosure probably over the years has been what is an abuse of authority. It's listed by statute. And this case um, deals with the definition of that, um, which I, I think I was shocked to learn had ne never really been defined uh, by the board or uh, by the federal circuit, uh, despite the amount of claims of abuse of authority over the years. Uh, maybe many people thought that it's one of those things where you know it if you see it, um, but uh, we get a little bit closer to uh, a hard definition here. And what it really comes down to, this is an army case where the board looked to other statutes and landed on you know, it's an exercise of authority that is inconsistent with the agency's mission. Um, and there's a lot of federal agencies out there with different missions. And I think it makes a lot of sense because uh, when you're abusing your authority, you're doing something largely for yourself, um, but you're using well, for the benefit of authority to do for it. the benefit of someone who isn't the federal agency, right? That's right. Connor, what what was the abuse of authority issue in Smolinski? So in Smolinski, the abuse of authority was. Um, a commanding officer who at a ball, um, you know, in the old timey term, the ball, uh, uh, you know, had a little bit too much to drink and bullied one of his subordinates um, at the ball and, and was talking stuff to uh, his subordinate's wife at the ball about how much he disliked the person. So really, obviously, that has nothing to do with the, the, the mission of, of the United States Army, of the Department of the Army. And so uh, the federal circuit ruled that, yes, that was an abuse of authority. Um, and when the employee disclosed it, it was a protected disclosure. Right. And so he, the employee was supposed to be protected under the statute from retaliation for disclosing a supervisor's poor conduct at that, you know, it's a military ball. It's a work event, right? It's a work That's party. Right. It's a work event. And so there was an abuse of authority there because the supervisor, you know, was talking to the subordinate employee in a work capacity. This wasn't purely social. They weren't out at a bar. They didn't run into each other at a restaurant. This was a work event where a supervisor was denigrating the subordinate and saying inappropriate things to the spouse about the subordinate. So abuse of authority, finally we have a definition. I know Connor is grateful for it. I'm grateful for it. And now we're up on our third break. We're gonna stop here for this final break. And when we return, we'll wrap up this discussion with the most impactful cases from 2022 
and a look at what legal developments we can expect in 2023. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Ready to picture the right vision coverage? Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision has two plans designed to fit any lifestyle. All members get fully covered in-network vision care exams and a frame allowance, plus access to over 125,000 independent providers and national retailers. And the best part? Plans start as low as $12 a month. With Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision, you get no illusions, just great coverage. Exactly how you pictured it, right? See what we can do for you at bcbsfepvision.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I'm James Heelan, and I'm here with my colleagues, Connor Dirks and Michael Scarlett. We're all attorneys here at the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth in Washington, D.C. And we're in our last segment of the show, talking about the top 10 cases of 2022 impacting the federal workforce. Let's dive back in and get to our cases one through three. Coming in second and third, we have a pair of cases dealing with the public's ability to sue federal employees in their individual capacities to be personally financially responsible for constitutional or rather allegedly uh, constitutional violations against members of the public. Those of you in the federal law enforcement community are probably rather familiar with the notion of a Bivens action. Bivens was a case that came out of the Supreme Court in 1971 that said, even though there was no statute, no congressional action allowing a certain kind of lawsuit against federal law enforcement, that the Fourth Amendment prohibition against warrantless search and seizure implicitly allowed members of the public to sue federal law enforcement officers for supposed violations of an individual's constitutional right under that amendment. In that case, specifically, warrantlessly entering an individual's home and manacling them to a radiator while conducting a very intrusive search of the person's home and person. For about 10 years, the Supreme Court extended that concept to other kinds of claims in a total of three cases. And then in 1980, began doing an about face and narrowing the, the federal court's ability to allow other kinds of constitutional actions against individual federal employee officers. So for 40 some years, the Supreme Court began narrowing it. And those of you who listen to our our show on the top 10 from last year may remember that the case of Egbert v. Boulay came in at number four on our list with the Supreme Court's rejection of the request in that case to reconsider Bivens altogether. Instead, the Supreme Court accepted a couple other narrower questions and came out with a decision that's now coming in at uh, number two on our list, paired with the case that Michael will talk about. And in this case, uh, the Supreme Court said that the the courts should not allow Bivens-style actions to proceed if there's even a single sound reason to defer to Congress on whether there's enough to require a court to refrain from extending Bivens. In other words, the Supreme Court in Egbert is saying if Congress has spoken on an issue or if there's a reason to believe that Congress is the right body, right, entity in government to decide whether to allow a cause of action that the federal judiciary should refrain. The quote is, even a single sound reason to defer to Congress is enough to require a court to refrain. Yes, so um, right in the wake of Egbert um, was actually a district, uh, or sorry, a D.C. Circuit um, case called KOB Sessions, and um, in that case, there was a published concurring opinion by um, Judge Silberman. And Judge Silberman held that the FTCA is a single sound reason not to recognize a new Bivens remedy. And for those who aren't familiar with the FTCA, that's the Federal Torts Claims Act. 
And what Silberman was saying is that the FTCA is a congressionally created remedy for plaintiffs to pursue when they're injured by um, government officials to seek redress from the government. And, you know, I think it's very interesting that his concurring opinion was published versus the majority opinion, which doesn't mention the FTCA um, as a single sound reason um, not being published. But regardless, um, in, in KOV sessions, the D.C. Circuit decided not to extend Bivens. All right. So Judge Silverman's making a point here. The, there's a statute out there, the FTCA, which was enacted back in the 1940s. And Congress in enacting the statute immunized federal employees, well, many federal employees, for their conduct on the job, while allowing members of the public to sue the federal government as the defendant for those employees' allegedly bad conduct. So Congress gave plaintiffs the right to um, you know, sue and have access to the U.S. Treasury, while at the same time prohibiting or protecting lawsuits against the federal employees whose conduct was at issue. Uh, Silberman says in his concurring opinion uh, that the FTCA is a congressional action, and that is a single sound reason not to allow Bivens cases to proceed. So those are number two and three, Egbert B. Boulay, the Supreme Court decision, and Judge Silberman on the D.C. Circuit, his published concurrence that came out the next month in July of 2022. That brings us to our number one case. Connor, would you would you take us home? Is there no you know trumpets that are going to play before I... <laughs> I don't know um, if listeners want to listen to me make vocal sounds like that. Probably not. <laughs> um, so the number one case of 2022 in our estimation uh, was Singh v. United States Postal Service, a May 2022 case out of the Merit Systems Protection Board that overruled at least 10 years of Douglas uh, case law on comparators. Um, and the listeners will no doubt be familiar, at least a little familiar with uh, the seminal case, Douglas v. Veterans Administration, um, from way back in the 80s that set out 12 factors uh, for agencies to consider when deciding on a reasonable penalty for misconduct. And those 12 factors have been applied with varying degrees of success um, since that opinion. Um, but what Singh really tracks is the ebb and flow, just like in uh, Egbert and uh, KOV sessions, the ebb and flow of uh, expansion and contraction of certain Douglas factors, their importance. Um, so here's the story, right? The the board initially, right after Douglas came out in a series of cases back in the late 80s and early 90s, um, held that Douglas Fix, which is uh, whether similarly situated employees were treated the same for same or similar misconduct, it was a very narrow question. It was, if you found a comparator, that person had to be in your work unit, uh, meaning probably someone you know, um, and the supervisor had to be the same. Uh, so that means that they are knowingly treating someone differently for the same misconduct. But uh, starting in 2010 or so, uh, what the board would consider as a comparator employee started exploding, started expanding. And the first way it started expanding was that they no longer required the misconduct to be near identical, 
it just became a broad similarity, something that could be in the same family of misconduct um, and how the government, how, how your agency treated that kind of misconduct. And then the other way that it expanded was that the board started considering agency-wide penalties. So you're no longer talking about just people in your work group, just people you work with and how they're treated. It's now uh, agency-wide. Uh, how does this federal agency treat its employees when they do similar things? And so, right, in, in, in a technical way, right? Not in a not in a necessarily knowing way on the part of the person making the decision right. on the disciplinary action, right? This is yeah, the board. because a lot of the times, you know, supervisors in two parts of a very big agency will have no clue what the other are doing. Why would they? Uh, you can think of a lot of big agencies, uh, the VA. Uh, the military agencies. I mean, these are big places, Department of Defense, where uh, different units are going to have really no idea what the other ones are doing. So in, in another case, it expanded further, and the board started weighing whether different kinds of misconduct were more or less serious, right? Mm -hmm. So even they'd accept comparator evidence on, you know, if some uh, someone else, you know, lacked candor and whether that lacking candor is more serious than uh, being late to work. Uh, and so you start comparing not only people who are in different parts of an agency, but also different kinds of misconduct. It really got pretty far afield. So uh, in May of 2022, the board really went back to basics. Right. They, May of 22 being very significant because that's when the chair chairperson was confirmed by the Senate. And there were now three members on the board, right? That's right. So right off the bat, um, the board issued Singh and overruled several of their their previous cases expanding uh, the Douglas Six analysis um, and called them those cases a departure from the standards set out in Douglas and really narrowed it back to the beginning which is to be a comparator, the discipline imposed on the other employee must be for identical or very similar misconduct, not just conduct that's as serious as or more serious as this employee's misconduct. Um, so really back to the very beginning of Douglas Six, simplifying the analysis, I think, for a lot of agencies and even for employees who no longer are going to be looking far, far afield for their comparators when they're disciplined. Right. The Singh board brought it back to whether the person making the decision knowingly was treating employees differently. And even then, uh, the board in Singh said Douglas Six is not a super factor. It is not the controlling factor in whether a penalty is reasonable or not. Right, Connor? Yeah, that's right. Um, there are 12 factors. Right. And the the Douglas Six is not the only one. And there may be a good reason to treat someone differently. Uh, it's not operating in a vacuum. So I, I certainly see the practicality of, of the board's decision here, but I guess my one hesitation is, is could it create inconsistent penalties across an agency looking at what a deciding official knows versus what the agency has done in the past? Yes. I mean, the short answer is yes, it could. Um, but in those cases, I think what the board would look for is what explanation is this deciding official uh, providing for why this person is treated differently than someone elsewhere in the agency and whether that explanation is reasonable and adds up. If it's not, they may very well fail the Douglas Six analysis and the board would have to consider that in determining whether the other factors outweigh it or whether they're going to uh, reverse the agency's penalty. 
you know, I'm looking forward to our own litigation on behalf of clients. I'm wondering about exploring whether human resources personnel, you know, uh, provide comparator information to deciding officials or whether they, they start withholding that information. And uh, if they start withholding it, how administrative judges are going to deal with those facts on an employee's appeal of an adverse action. So that's our top 10 cases. I wanna use our last couple of minutes. And I think Singh is a big case. I'm glad we spent so much time on it, but I wanna spend the last couple of minutes talking about, um, you know, what do we think binds these uh, top 10 cases together? What are some through themes? And if you have any comments about how you think 2023 is shaping up, Michael? So, I mean, one of the major themes of these cases, particularly the new board cases and even the federal circus cases that we see saw come out in 2022 is, is efficiency and, and, and practicality in, um, you know, um, how, how they're looking at things going forward. They're, they're just cutting through the noise and in, in, in issuing decisions that make sense um, and are more easily um, able to navigate. Yeah, and I think that's a double-edged sword, right? Um, and some people will view it as easier for agencies to enact uh, disciplinary actions that they want to. But on the other hand, you have uh, less, a less arcane system that employees can get their uh, get their heads around more quickly. And so they can really understand what their rights are. I definitely agree that this is eliminating a lot of what people would often criticize as the red tape of the federal bureaucracy and the system for um, holding federal employees accountable. Now, looking ahead, uh, you mentioned, well, we've all mentioned the reconstituted board. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what the board does about regulations for some of the laws that have been enacted while the board was vacant. Uh, we had the new developments in Title 38. This is the laws affecting the employment rights of DA employees. And the board has been operating with some accepted practices and I, I can't speak necessarily to their internal processes, but I think we'll see the board enact regulations that clearly define how those appeals get processed at the board. There's also the question of the board's stay authority their ability now for a single member to grant or reject a stay request um, on a federal employee's personnel action in, I think, whistleblower protection cases. So those are my thoughts moving forward. And that's all the time we actually have for the show today. I want to thank Connor Dirks and Michael Scarlett from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth for joining me for this discussion. And thanks to all of you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to our free e-newsletters Fed Manager and Fed Agent to stay up to date with all the legal developments impacting the federal community. Learn more about how to subscribe at the link in the show description below. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, and I hope you all have a great weekend. <laughs>